Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the popular imagination of many people across the world, Islam is, sadly, associated with war and, and violence. Now, with you know, reporting on the instability in the Middle East, as well as things like terrorist attacks by extremist Muslims, coupled with a lack of education and understanding on the Islamic world and its religion, this is perhaps, unfortunately, somewhat understandable. This is why it's so important to encourage and provide that kind of education, which can counteract black and white perspectives on the world. Indeed, the role of war in Islam is a lot more complex and multifaceted than many people realize, and concepts like jihad are often greatly misunderstood, or at the very least, oversimplified. Questions of the legitimacy of violence and war in Islam have always occupied scholars from the religion's inception until today, and there have been many different perspectives and rulings in different times and places when it comes to such subjects, as well as the question of Muslim-non-Muslim relationships. These perspectives fall along a spectrum with what we could call intolerance and maybe harshness on one side, and tolerance and maybe even pacifism on the other. 
while we're not going to cover this broad topic as a whole today, instead leaving that to a future episode, we're going to look at a particular example of an Islamic tradition that strongly emphasizes non-violence and peaceful coexistence, a kind of pacifist form of Islam that flourished in West Africa and which is specifically associated with a scholar and an Islamic jurist called Al-Hajj Salim Suwari and the so-called Suwarian tradition. Islam has an incredibly strong presence in West Africa. The overwhelming majority of people in countries like Senegal, the Gambia, and Mali are Muslim, and the religion has a long and complicated history here. But this wasn't always the case, and previously in history, West African Muslims found themselves living alongside, and sometimes under the leadership of, non-Muslim pagan inhabitants of the region. This resulted in debates among Muslim scholars regarding how one should approach such a situation. How does one conduct trade and business with non-Muslims? Are Muslims allowed to live under non-Muslim, even pagan, leadership? How does one conduct missionary work to spread the religion? And should jihad, in the form of armed war, be used as a tool for this? It wasn't until the 19th century that countries like Senegal became majority Muslim, and this was in large part thanks to strong opposition to French colonialism at the time. And even at that point, and maybe even still today, these kinds of discussions have erupted in this region and in the Islamic world in general. In a previous episode, we explore the life and teachings of Amadou Bamba, a Sufi saint and founder of the Muridiya Sufi order, who emphasized non-violence and education as the only legitimate response to colonial oppression, rather than war or violence. He is certainly one of the most significant figures in West African history, and his non-violent policies have been very successful. But these kinds of ideas were not unheard of in the region before. Many earlier figures, Sufis and scholars, had taken a similar position, and Bamba certainly had much earlier scholarship to rely on to a certain degree. And when talking about the non-violent or even pacifist Islamic tradition in West Africa, there are few figures as significant, aside from Bamba, as Al-Hajj Salim Suwari. He was a powerful and highly revered Muslim cleric and jurist from what is today Mali in West Africa. He belonged to the Soninke people and started a kind of movement based on his teachings, which became known as the Suwarian tradition. Suwari's name is often preceded by the title Al-Hajj, which is a common title in the region in particular to denote someone who has done the long and difficult pilgrimage to Mecca, the so-called Hajj. In fact, Suwari was famous for doing the pilgrimage seven times, which is an incredible feat at this time. So if you were doing the Hajj from Iraq, for example, it's still impressive, right, at this time in the Middle Ages, but comparably not as long of a distance to go. You don't have to walk as far. If you're going to walk from all the way from West Africa in Mali to Mecca, now that is pretty impressive. And seven times too, right? So, you know. He had the respect of the people for maybe a good reason. The main problem with Suwari is that we don't know much about his life. There is, in particular, a huge debate in scholarship about dating. Some scholars, such as Lamine or Saneh, believe that he lived around the 12th to 13th century, while others, such as Ivor Wilkes, instead place his death around the year 1500, which is obviously a significant difference, a couple of hundred years. There are good arguments for both sides, and I'm not going to be making an argument here, uh, even though I do tend to lean towards the earlier date. Instead, I'm going to leave it to you to decide for yourselves what you think. Regardless, the dating of his life does not change the, the, the basic facts about his teachings and the legacy 
that he has in this region. Living in West Africa, Suwadi established a community based on his understanding of Islam and Islamic law that tackled some of the most pressing questions for Muslims living in this region at the time. The vast majority of people were, after all, non-Muslims, following the indigenous religious traditions of West Africa, and on many occasions Muslims thus found themselves living under non-Muslim kings. This taps into some of the most significant discussions in Islamic law regarding questions of missionary work, the status of non-Muslims, and jihad. And Suwadi would largely adopt what we can call a pacifist stance. The word pacifist should be somewhat nuanced here though, because the Quran seems to allow, at the very least, war and violence in terms of self-defense, there are few examples of an absolute pacifism in Islamic history. Jihad is a word that is complicated in itself. It does not mean holy war, as many assume, but rather struggle or striving. And this can mean various different kinds of striving and struggle. It can mean to struggle against your ego, the jihad and nafs that the Sufis often talk about. It can mean to struggle to be a good person, struggle in charity, and struggle for the betterment of the environment, for example. But it can also, of course, mean struggle in the form of armed conflict or war. And on some level, this form of armed jihad has usually been considered a legitimate and often important aspect of Islam. In particular, in self-defense or in protecting the borders of Islamic lands, jihad has been a sort of communal obligation of sorts. But the details of these ideas are complex, and scholars have debated them across history. There is a long tradition within Islam of just war. War needs to have a proper defensible justification, and during war certain rules need to be followed. Pretty universal across these traditions have been rules such as the prohibition of killing women and children, or non-combatants in general, prohibition against burning crops or killing animals, as well as always giving the enemy the opportunity to resolve things peacefully before engaging, right? So always offering the options to either convert to Islam or to pay a tax that allow them to freely practice their own religion. These rules basically come from the hadiths and reports of the Prophet's life. It is said that the Prophet, when their community would go out into a battle, would hold a speech and, and would lay down these basic rules, as would later caliphs like Omar, for example. In any case, these kinds of questions became very important as Muslims spread into new lands, such as West Africa, for example. Some scholarly communities saw it as an obligation to spread the rule of the Islamic religion, by war if necessary, and that it was impermissible for Muslims to live in lands ruled by non-Muslims, often referred to in the Middle Ages as the Dar al-Harb, the abode of war, as opposed to the Dar al-Islam, the abode of Islam, or sometimes the abode of peace, right? the, the Dar al-Salam. But others disagreed, instead holding more nuanced and complex views of this situation. Al-Hajj Salim Suwari was one such figure. Suwadi was, as we have said, an eminent Islamic scholar and jurist. In particular, like most Muslims in Western and Northern Africa, he belonged to the Maliki school of Islamic law, founded by the early Muslim figure Malik ibn Anas in Medina. Suwadi had studied deeply the main texts and sources of the Maliki school and was an expert on Islamic law, particularly as understood through a Maliki lens. And his whole mission in life was dedicated to educating the people in West Africa on proper Islamic practice and how to live alongside non-Muslims. And while others may have chosen a more hardline position, favoring things like offensive jihad as a necessary means of spreading the religion, Suwadi took a rather quote-unquote liberal or tolerant approach. The scholar Ivor Wilkes wrote, quote, 
Conflicts between the proponents and opponents of jihad as a means of economic, social, and religious change can be traced back in the West African context to early Maliki jurists who were gravely concerned with the spiritual consequences for those Muslim traders who were increasingly conducting business, especially in Golden Heights, with non-Muslim opposite numbers in the deserts and grasslands to the south. Suwari and the large clerical community that he started, which became known as the Yakanke, became known particularly for their strong disavowal and rejection of armed jihad as a means for religious or political change. All the sources and current traditions attest to this fact. Suwari seems to have seen jihad as a counterproductive and harmful way to spread or indeed represent the religion of Islam. Instead, Suwari seems to have emphasized education and peaceful interactions as the better way forward. He said to have gone on several peaceful missionary journeys into Senegal and the Gambia, among other places, where he would speak to both Muslims and non-Muslims about the importance of education and his rejection of armed jihad in this context. His perspective seems to have been one where the best way to spread Islam and to gain converts, so to say, which was the ultimate goal after all, was not to take over by force, but to provide a positive example. By being good people and neighbors and peacefully educating about the religion, this would be a much more successful way of doing missionary work. Now, as I said before, this pacifism needs to be nuanced. Suwari would have agreed with the Quran that violence or war was legitimate or justified in circumstances of self-defense, as well as probably in other contexts as well. But in terms of uh, political and religious change, uh, of, of sort of um, of achieving political or, or or religious change in this context, he saw it as completely uh, counterproductive and illegitimate. It was not a viable option to him, based on his understanding of the Quran and Islamic law, particularly as understood through the Maliki school, as we said. In fact, he wanted no involvement in politics or secular rule at all, and this is a stance that would characterize his movements across history after his life also. In talking about this topic, the scholar Ivor Wilkes lists seven points which represent Suwari's position on Muslim-non-Muslim relations, as explained by scholars in the current Jula community that has maintained and represented his teachings over the centuries. He says, quote, First, kufr, unbelief, is the result of jahl, that is, of ignorance, rather than wickedness. Second, God's grand design for the world is such that some people remain in the jahiliyyah, the state of ignorance, longer than others. Third, true conversion can, therefore, occur only in God's time, and actively to proselytize is to interfere with his will. Accordingly, fourth, jihad against unbelievers is an unacceptable method of conversion, and recourse to arms is permissible only in self-defense should the very existence of the Muslim community be threatened by unbelievers. Fifth, Muslims may accept the authority of non-Muslim rulers and indeed support it insofar as this enables them to follow their own way of life in accordance with the Sunnah of the Prophet. Sixth, the Muslims have to present the unbelievers with qudwa, example, and so, when the time for conversion comes, thereby make possible iqtida, emulation. And seventh, the Muslims must ensure that by their commitment to education and learning, they keep their observance of the law free from error. End quote. Again, this isn't necessarily based on any writings by Suwari himself, and I'm personally skeptical of some of the points here. 
For example, the third point that proselytizing should be avoided seems to clash with other sources that point to the actual missionary activities of Suwadi himself, on top of honestly just not making much sense for a Muslim to say. It seems likely to me that Suwadi and his community certainly sought to spread Islam, but rejected any forcible way to do so. Indeed, the Quran does state that there is, quote, no compulsion in religion, and the general rule in Islamic law has been that forced conversions are not allowed, even though they did, of course, happen occasionally. Scholars like Suwadi seem to have taken it even further by rejecting jihad as a means of spreading the religion altogether. Instead, as we saw in the quote, emphasizing showing good example and emphasizing education and peaceful proselytizing. In his missionary travels, he not only preached, but also established mosques and a kind of kind of a whole educational system, actually, one that became very significant for the future of Islam and education in the region. Wilkes again says, quote, Whatever his doctrinal positions, however, Al-Hajj Salim's main claims to innovation lie in the pedagogical field. Over a large part of West Africa, the institutional framework within which teaching has been organized seems largely his work. Al-Hajj Salim Suwari became a very influential figure, being referred to in his time as the Sheikh al-Shuyukh, the Sheikh of all Sheikhs. He had hundreds, if not thousands, of followers during his lifetime, and stories even tell of how he founded the city of Diyakha Bambuku, or Diyakaba, which became a significant city and center for Islamic clerics in particular. He had founded a major community of clerical elites dedicated to education, non-violence, political non-involvement, and proper Islamic conduct. This community became known as the Yakanke, and which would spread across all of West Africa and beyond, thus making Suwari's teachings available in many different places. Even today, there are significant communities and many people, scholars, and leaders who are influenced by or have inherited the Suwarian tradition. Indeed, this is possibly visible in the very dramatic events of the 19th and 20th century, as countries like Senegal and the Gambia, in many ways, took on the form that they have now. Interestingly, the Suwadian tradition and way of thinking seems to have eventually become influential on the Sufis of the Qadri order in particular that would become very prominent in this region. The 19th century was a very turbulent time for Senegal in particular. It saw a lot of conflicts between tribal leaders, several violent examples of jihad, and connected to this, the gradual colonization of the country by France. In response to this situation, there were many Muslim leaders and scholars that emphasized and supported armed jihad as a response to this situation, while others rejected it in favor of other tactics. The famous figure of Al-Hajj Umar Tal, for example, led a large jihad in the region against what he saw as unbelievers, both non-Muslims and Muslims who failed to uphold correct practice, and created a kind of state, the Tokelor Empire, which lasted for only a few decades. But as a response to his campaigns, many other Muslim scholars were critical. Figures from or influenced by the Yakanka community associated with Suwari repudiated Umar Tal and advised against his jihad. Similarly, the famous Qadri Sufi leader Ahmed al-Baka'i also strongly condemned and criticized Tal for his extremism and unlawful use of war and violence. As the French colonial powers started to establish themselves in the region, there was a similar response. Many chose to fight back with arms, whereas others favored peaceful and non-violent cooperational responses. Very interestingly, and this is a big generalization, we can observe that the figures who chose the path of jihad, armed jihad, were usually associated with the Tijaniya Sufi order, including Al-Hajj Umar Tal. 
By contrast, Sufi leaders and Muslim scholars from the Qadri Sufi order were more likely to reject violent responses and favor peaceful means, sometimes even cooperation with the French. We saw earlier that Suwari and the Suwarian tradition seems to have been influential on the Qadri order in particular, and we might speculate that there is some kind of connection here. Could we go as far as to say that the great figure of Ahmadu Bamba is one representative of this? I don't want to say that his non-violent stance was a direct result of Suwarian teachings. We should view Bamba as his own person, with his own ideas, of course. But Bamba was, after all, before founding his own Muridiya order, a member of the Qadri order of Sufism. Could it be that Bamba was somehow indirectly or directly influenced by a scholarly environment that was infused with Suwarian tendencies? In Bamba's own non-violent jihad against French colonialism, he emphasized education as the best way to create social change, and rejected armed jihad and violence as counterproductive and destructive to the Muslims, and the well-being of the region in general. He also used similar arguments as those attributed to Suwari, that it is completely permissible to live under non-Muslim leadership, in this case the French, as long as the Muslims living in that land were still allowed to practice their religion. It's hard to say for sure, but what we can say is that both Al-Hajj Salim Suwari and Ahmadu Bamba represent a similar pacifistic tendency within Islam, an emphasis on non-violence and education as a more proper way to spread the religion and live alongside other people peacefully. This is not unique to West Africa, and these discussions have been had across Islamic history, and today what we have explored in this episode is only one particular example of how this debate has been had in a West African environment in particular, and how the influential Maliki scholar Salim Suwari created a tradition of non-violence and peaceful coexistence that became infused in many different communities in the region, influencing events and attitudes even into the contemporary world. Senegal and the Gambia is indeed a unique case where the relationship between religion and secular state has an interesting setup in the modern world that seems to work out pretty well, and where different groups of people can live together without any major problems. Perhaps this contemporary situation can be traced not only to modern figures like Amadou Bamba, but also further back in history to foundational scholars like Suwari. I will see you next time. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.